Oh my goodness. Welcome to the Poetry Pea podcast. And I have to tell you, I'm a little bit excited. Today I'm joined by Bruce H. Feingold, who'll be reading from his book Everything with an Asterisk, and one of my family, who's going to read one of Bruce's poems to us and tell us why she chose it. Family are important to both Bruce and I, as you're going to hear. And, well, there's something I'm working on with Sean O'Connor. Did you listen to the last episode? The one called All About Haibun? It's really going down a storm. Anyway, we're kicking about an idea that I think you're going to love. And if it comes to fruition, things will move fast. I won't have time to tell you about it in the next podcast. Maybe you'll spot a post about it on my Instagram account, perhaps even a Twitter post. But honestly, the best way of finding out about it is to join my mailing list. I think you're going to want to hear about it. Head over to the website and sign up. I don't send out that many mailings. But if you think I do, you can always unsubscribe. To be honest, I've got a very low unsubscribe rate, so hopefully I'm doing something right. Thank you to all of you who read my mails. I have a couple of other things to tell you about before I introduce Bruce and Kelsey. If you sent me a high one to read last month, that's January 2023, Shane and I will be reading this month. But if you don't hear back from us by the end of February, email me. There will have been a glitch in the Matrix. And remember I promised you a list of places you could send your speculative poetry, perhaps even your prose. Well, thanks to Jerome Berglund, who basically wrote the list for me, it's now available at Buy Me A Coffee. There's a link in the show notes. It's free, but if you'd like to leave a donation, I would be very grateful for anything you can afford. It helps to keep the podcast going. Don't forget our latest video prompt is out on YouTube, link in the show notes. Last month was a bumper submission month, a record breaker. Let's make this month even bigger and better. Linda's waiting for your submissions. Just put them in the comments and she reads every one. Thanks, Linda. And so, to some more big news. The journal is out. If you didn't get the news in the mailing list, because you're not signed up to it, there's a link in the show notes. My thanks to Richard Tice for his hard work in helping me proofread. Mistakes, if there are any, will definitely be mine though. So shall we go and meet Bruce and Kelsey? Hello and welcome back to Poetry P Readings and I'm delighted to be opening this second series with another visit from the illustrious haiku poet Bruce H. Feingold. Bruce, hello and thank you so much for coming back and reading to us. Long time no speak, in, in person anyway. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back, Patricia. I'm really uh, honoured and grateful to be here today. It's always lovely to have you. I'm looking forward to hearing hearing you read because there's nothing better than hearing the poet read their own work. We're going to hear from your latest work, Everything with an Asterisk, which is published by Red Moon Press. And, uh, you know, I know already that some of our community have purchased it. But if you 
haven't already and you would like to, all the details will be in the show notes, of course. And Bruce, congratulations, not just on this book. It's a little treasure, but I know that another little treasure has arrived in your life. You've become a granddad again. Great news. Thank you. And if you would like, I'd love you to be able to join that club, Patricia. It's a great club to be a member of. Um, And I'm happy to share that our uh, daughter gave birth to her first child on Thanksgiving morning. Oh, wow. uh, Okay. Thanksgiving morning, yes. And we have a lot to be grateful for. And little Eliana or Ellie inspired this poem. After a long labor, a baby's crown appears Thanksgiving sunrise. After a long labor, a baby's crown appears Thanksgiving sunrise. Thanks, Bruce. Now, before Bruce reads his first piece to us, I'd like to read the dedication he has written at the beginning of his book. I dedicate this collection of poems written during the pandemic to my family, friends, and all who have suffered, and to those we have lost. And then, Bruce, you immediately follow this dedication with the first poem. Winter drought, our grandson safe in his amniotic sack. Winter drought, our grandson safe in his amniotic sack. Now, Bruce, this book is divided into six sections. So you've got a prologue, you've got upside down, without nets, fire clouds, old growth and first steps. And if we go back to the poem you've just read, on the surface, we've got two very contrasting images, the drought and the rather more fluid scenario of the amniotic sac, which for me anyway, beautifully emphasises the uncertainty and insecurity of the situation we found ourselves in during COVID, whilst at the end, obviously giving us hope, hope for the future. And I wondered if you put this haiku right at the right after the dedication, whilst our mind is still on the COVID scenario, to give it that maximum impact. It's sort of another juxtaposition, if you like. Yes, I did. Uh, Our daughter-in-law was pregnant during the harrowing days of 2020 during COVID. And it overlapped with our historic drought and our terrible wildfires in Northern California. Mm. You know, in our verdant San Francisco Bay Area, which so many people love, has really become more desert-like. And personally, we lost a beloved uncle and a a close friend in Manhattan in the first month of COVID. So I wrote this poem in the early days of COVID before there were vaccines. And we would visit in our our garden, our backyard, with our son and our daughter-in-law, Mass, when she was pregnant, and we'd be 10, 15 feet apart. And as you said, safety and the security were really tentative. And I think we probably all remember how frightening it was the first couple of months. And uh, this poem does speak to the resiliency of the human spirit. And uh, our the expectant mother, our daughter-in-law and our son were doing everything possible to protect their uh, baby. Yeah. And thankfully, another safe delivery for the family yes, at the end. Yes, yes. Yeah. Now let's hear from the next section, which was Upside Down. One Republican, one Democrat, the same virus. One Republican, one Democrat, the same virus. Now, I think most of us, um, regardless of where we come from, can identify with what I think you're saying in this poem. For me, I'm hearing that 
they, our wonderful politicians, are all as bad as each other. Am I am I right? Well, actually, I hadn't thought of that interpretation. <laughs> I wrote it that all politicians are like a virus, which actually I don't believe. I think there was a continuum. But I had something else in mind. Okay. Uh, you know, I'm a product of the 60s mm-hmm. and the Vietnam War and the protests oh, against course. it. Yeah, uh, we're also purchasing inequities in American society, and mm-hmm. as as a young person in that era, we were told to love it or leave it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but since sixteen in the election of Trump, uh, American politics are even more bitterly divided. And I think they're more bitterly divided and polarized across the globe for the most part. Mm-hmm. And in the center, I was trying to emphasize our basic humanity, whatever our political differences or political uh, uh, affiliations. And that aging and illness and death, you know, are the great levelers of human existence. Mm-hmm. And the, the hope in the poem was implied that if we look for what's common between us, that we all live and die and raise families, all try to do good, that uh, that's a way better way to go forward than harboring the uh, resentments of differences. I think there are lots of challenges going on in the world. And I think, as you you know, the collection really reflects a lot of those challenges. Yes. They're all coming to a head in, in our lifetime right now. The wonderful <laughs> thing about haiku, I don't know whether my unconscious was talking about that or, but, you know, often haiku are open to different interpretations. So I, I'm fine with that. That made me really laugh, actually. I said, oh, I didn't thought of it that way. Do you know, I, I love it when somebody comes and tells me the way they've interpreted it and I see something totally new in, in yes, the yes, poem yes. as well. Before we move on to the next section, Bruce, I'd like to talk about another one of your poems. Now, you know this, but not everybody does. My family took a great interest in this book of yours. And so I involved them in the choice for the poems for Mm -hmm. this reading. So I'm going to introduce Kelsey, my son's partner, to read one of her favourites for the podcast. Kelsey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. As I said to Bruce, over Christmas, the family took a real interest in his book, Everything with an Asterisk. And I know you chose quite a few that touched you. But I made you choose one in particular, and perhaps you could read that one to us. Sure. Move to the front of the file cabinet, our will. Move to the front of the file cabinet, our will. So, Kelsey, why did you decide on that one in particular? So when I was reading it, it really struck a nerve with me. Um, I wasn't entirely sure why. It it made me feel sad. Um, I think it was just kind of a very open-ended feeling that it had to it. You you don't quite have to know that it took place in COVID. You can kind of think that this is your family or this is someone that you know, um, and you can kind of apply your own kind of personal experience to it. Yeah, and in general, it just really struck something and made me feel quite quite sad. Did it make you think at all about your own mortality or maybe the mortality of people around you? I don't think at the moment it did when I was reading it, but when we were kind of chatting earlier today, I I realized that it was probably more deeply about my family, Um, not about my own mortality, but thinking about kind of my parents or my grandparents, it, it, you know, they're getting up there and it it made me think probably um, about, about them in that way. Thanks, Kelsey. Thanks very much for coming on. Of course. Thank you. Bruce, can you tell me the story behind this one? Well, it was written 
during early COVID, as, as, as a lot of you know from my collection in 2020 arrhythmia, I had a very life-threatening cardiac arrest in 2016. And I think I was probably reworking some issues in our financial and wills and those sorts of things. And a lot of those papers are in the back of the file cabinet. And I moved to the front to work on it. You know, the poem really can stand alone, but it, it also, I think, speaks to the increased awareness of mortality that happened uh, for everyone and uh, during COVID and increased awareness of illness, infirmity, and, and our own aging. Kelsey and I discussed, obviously, uh, whether it could stand alone as, as a senri or whether she felt that she needed to know that you were writing this in the time of COVID. And, yeah. and, she and felt I do that think didn't... it stands alone too, because it's, yeah. as we age and the infirmities of our bodies and we watch, we have losses, which are inevitable, especially as we age, uh, you know, we're more aware of uh, mortality moving to the front of the front of the cabinet. Yeah. I mean, that was it for me, the, the age thing, covid brought that really front and center to your mind, didn't it? Particularly if you were of a certain age, and as you said, you had the experience of the yeah. cardiac arrest. It really brought to the forefront of my mind, you know, I need to be careful and it will have all my affairs in order, which thankfully, mm-hmm. hopefully they are. It was a poem that was included in the Red Moon Anthology, of uh, the best English uh, language haiku in, I guess, 2020 or 2021. So the next section that you have in the book is without nets. And I think, and again, maybe I'm misinterpreting, so put me straight. I find this section often has poems that feel like we've had our legs cut out from under us, that Mm. uh, life's a little bit weird, a little bit strange. Mm -hmm. And um, I'd like to read you one of my favourites, and perhaps you can read it after me so we can hear you read it too. Lazy August Day, my grandson's long conversation with Big Bird and Buddha. Yes, uh, this is my Senru haiku uh, with a tribute to innocent wisdom and to our uh, grandson who's now two and a half, Ronan. And he was in the stage of babbling uh, when I wrote this poem. Uh, It was a lazy August day. It it was 2020 uh, and um, 2021, actually. And, you know, Big Bird and Buddha have large, open, appealing faces. And we know that babies and toddlers are drawn to bold features. And from a really early age, uh, Ronan took a special liking to Big Bird and to Buddhas. And in our home, we have Buddhas from around the world. We have Buddhas from uh, Japan and China and Cambodia and Nepal. And we also have, I have a, a wonderful collection of Nitschke's little uh, toggles for the clothes. And he would love to bring those down along with our <laughs> Nepalese Kathmandu Buddha and play with them in our living room. It was one of his favorite activities. And he's got old, he would say, Buddha, Grandpa, Buddha. <laughs> um, and he, he really would talk with Big Bird and Buddha on a very regular basis and babble with them. And I do confess that it's a soothing thing. I taught Ronan and I would do Om when he was a little, he's a very good little guy, but we would chant Om and he would laugh about that. And his first favorite musical instrument is a singing bowl that I've got, uh, that I have from Kathmandu when I did the Everest trek. And that's where you spin the bowl or you bong it. And that he's very excited about that. And, you know, my son joked that I've made his little child into an old, wise old mama. (laughs) (laughs) But he really does love Big Bird and Buddha. So bless him. 
lazy August day, my grandson's long conversation with Big Bird and Buddha. It's just a, such a wonderful piece. And I should tell you, Bruce, because you're very involved with the Touchstone Awards at the Haiku mm. Foundation. I'd have loved to nominate that one. Thank uh, you. Right. Over to you again for the next haiku. Mm -hmm. Nobody likes my reading recommendation, Camus the Plague. Nobody likes my reading recommendation, Camus the Plague. I can't imagine why, Bruce, but um, <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was wondering, did you actually read it during the COVID period? I did read it. It was the first <laughs> novel I read. And actually, I read it in college, and I have a modern library edition with a pristine cover of about 10 <laughs> modern library editions. And one of them I still have on the bookshelf is Camus the Plague. My husband also read it, but I couldn't I couldn't face it. Um, he was he was telling me that he found the first half very interesting because it, you know the comparison between what we were going through in COVID. But my son, who like you read it in college, um, and so pre-COVID, was much more highfalutin about it and told me he he found it very interesting as an allegory of the Nazi occupation of France. Yeah, um, and you know your husband and son are both right. There are mm -hmm. incredible parallels between what Camus describes as a great observer of human society and, and people, uh, especially he describes a heroic doctor who's selfless and works really hard to save his community and uh, protect his community. On the other hand, he also describes, Camus describes a lot of cowardice and selfishness and fear that drives people. So it was very inspiring in that way. There were also a lot of storylines which were really very funny and ironic and crazy from, from our view, especially today. Uh, you know, just like some Americans started taking horse medicine, parasite medicine, and shunned science. There's a great section where Camus described the community had an idea that peppers, peppermint lozenges would protect you from the plague. And so there was a run on peppermint lozenges that went for an incredible amount of value of money, currency, whatever it would be in, in the French, uh, French Algeria in that uh, poem. Um, you know, and, and your son is right. The, the, it was published in 47, it was written during the war, and Camus was in the French underground and risked everything. Uh, he was very courageous in that way. And, and in that way, the book really inspired me around helping my family helping my patients, especially to pr help protect them, help them cope, help them get good scientific information to try to make good decisions of how they wanted to deal with um, with COVID. So it was, and the endurance that, that Camus describes in the book really, uh, again, inspired me about how this COVID is a long, um, the pandemic's a long process that we're all going through together. Um, and I did recommend it to several family members and friends that, Everybody shunned it, just like the play. <laughs> not one person read it. So. <laughs> I'll get to it eventually, but not just now. Now, the next part, fire clouds. Um, you spoke very briefly a little while ago about the um, situation you found yourself in in the San Francisco area with the the, the fires, the, the natural fires. And I'm guessing this next piece that you're going to read to us was inspired by that. So yes. over to you. A crow perched on the blackened branch, fire clouds. A crow perched 
on the blackened branch, fire clouds. You know, and, and the poems from this section occurred in the autumn and winter of 2020 when COVID was at its peak. Uh, there were wildfires and the smoke in the Bay Area, all Northern California was just terrible for weeks and weeks. It was, wow. our air was as bad as Beijing for about a month. Yeah. yeah. Presidential election was at, was at a fever pitch. And during that period, a very dear friend of ours died of a sudden heart attack. Oh. Um, and th this section ends with the uh, title poem, 2020, everything with an asterisk. Yeah. And on September 20th, 2020, now known as Orange Wednesday, Northern California was shrouded in the smoke during these terrible wildfire periods, and it induces pyrocumulus fire cloud. Mm -hmm. And the sky turned an eerie orange at 10 in the morning. I have a photo of it, uh, which which I can email you if you'd like. And, yeah. you know, I've witnessed historic drought, and, uh, wildfires in the last 10 years. And, you know, I've seen the shrinking glaciers and the Himalayas uh, in your neck of the woods and the Alps and in our Sierras. But this was a very visceral moment, not just for me, but for many Californians, especially the climate change and climate disaster isn't in the distant future that it's now. And I wanted to talk about the way you put this poem together, mm -hmm. a crow yeah. perched on the blackened branch fire clouds. There's lots, it, to me, it's, the images are key. It's mm -hmm. dark and dismal, not quite gone over to sinister, but it's it's getting there. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I love the reiteration of the, the idea of the colour black. So I just wanted to, to ask you, yes, it's written from experience, uh, you know, in, in general, it's written from experience. But was there an actual crow on a blackened branch? Or did the yes, idea this, of... Oh, this, okay. this haiku is an homage to Basho's crow haiku. I thought, yeah. And in yeah. my mind, it's contemporary interpretation of what it means to be human right now. Mm -hmm. And it's a little different than Basho's uh, poem. You know, Basho's poem juxtaposed the withered dark branch, the crows in dusk. And my poem does the same, but it also adds this eerie orange day of the fire clouds. And I also think it links the black crows and autumn, the existential issues that Basho talks about, about being human with our, our times, wildfire, climate disaster, which I think adds depth to the poem. Mm -hmm. So it has this extra image of these, the, the black, the darkness with this very eerie orange of the sky. And, and actually there were really crows, but I have a confession that was not on a withered branch <laughs> They were on the power lines walking up our street. There were crows on the power lines of this eerie orange, <laughs> scary, frightening day. No, but I think you've explained to us why it works so well. Um, as you say, the homage works so well. And putting the two poems together really mm -hmm. makes um, quite an, uh, an impact. And I'll put the other poem in the, the show notes so that people can, okay. mm -hmm. can read it. Um, now, the next poem you're going to read to us comes from the old growth section of the book. Mm -hmm. uh, I have another theory why you put it there, but, <laughs> um, but perhaps <laughs> perhaps when you've read it to us, you'll tell us why, and okay. then I can tell you if, it, if, if my theory was way off base. <laughs> Rainy days discovering belly buttons. Rainy days discovering belly buttons. 
you know, it truly was a rainy autumn day. Mm -hmm. And we have our grandson several days a week with us. And he discovered his belly buttons and he wanted to inspect everyone's uh, tummies. <laughs> Uh, as this was published in Bottle Rock, which is Stan Forrester called it a, a Zen Jewish haiku. <laughs> and while I wasn't, I, it was a, just a miraculous moment that was very funny and interesting as he was learning about his his body, his awareness was growing. But, you know, the belly button is a reminder of our initial state of connection and safety with our mothers. And, you know, yogis consider uh, the navel a sacred spot. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, the belly button is the physical symbol that we're both separate and connected. Mm -hmm. So while we had this miracle of our grandson with us during COVID, uh, and we also, our daughter got married. She had a, you know, typical large wedding uh, mm -hmm. plan, but with COVID and the wildfire, she ended up having this backyard wedding with eight people all in mass, tables oh. separated. And it was, and it was about hundred degrees at five o'clock, which is really rare and there was smoky, but we had this beautiful event. So the, the whole the whole volume, I think, in this section about old growth contrasts as the dance between old growth and wisdom and adaptation with youth and growing and generations carrying on. Mm -hmm. So that's the why this poem ended up in old growth, which is contrast. Um, between uh, like an old growth and rebirth. And the, the last poem of this section, I think really speaks to this and it's a very simple one, but I, I think it has a lot of uh, resonance and it, it goes like this. She roars with her grandson, dinosaur book. She roars with her grandson, dinosaur book. So after all this tragedy, this image of my wife's energy, and of course, dinosaurs are the most oldest thing that we contemplate. Uh, probably, especially with children who love dinosaurs. So I don't know yeah. if that fits uh, your thinking of why this poem was in that section. It, it sort of does. Um, it, to me, it was a sort of you. You've reached a certain age, but you you were working in this particular poem. You've reached a certain age, but you are interacting with this very young little person, and you're rediscovering. In some ways, you're rediscovering childhood and the, the wonderful things about childhood the wonder you know mm -hmm. and I thought you know, that that to me is a little bit about growing old the old growth I'm looking forward to should I ever have grandchildren you know that extra dimension to my life really and, and that's mm -hmm. that's why I thought this one came into to that yeah. section which and I loved it and I also I'm glad you read, read the dinosaur poem too because I just loved that idea I could just see see your wife uh, mm -hmm. sitting there reading the book and and roaring and the two of them probably roaring at each other with this. They love Tyrannosaurus Rex and Megasaurus. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Now, sadly, we're coming towards the end of our reading, but the next one paradoxically comes from the section called First Steps, uh, and I'm going to have another crack at figuring out why it's okay. in there and again you're going to tell me probably how wrong i am but i think this this section are the poems in this section are full of hope and full of wonder again and the, and the things that you've got left to do with your life mm -hmm. um, and it's sort of the the perfect antidote if you like to the time of covid when life stood still and nothing seemed certain and i think the first one you're going to read to us really hit home i think it it speaks 
about how we were all feeling during the mm. COVID um, scenario. Fenced garden, the deer nudges against the rusted latch. Fenced garden, the deer nudges against the rusted latch. Again, I'm going to be misinterpret your poem for you, Bruce, but for me, the rusted latch spoke about, you know, how we had been in prison and we we had the relationships we had were very strange and stilted and we were sort of emerging back out with with a little bit of hope back mm-hmm. out into the new into the world you know we were a bit rusty at it we were a bit mm-hmm. rusty at actually physically talking to people wasn't mm-hmm. that weird going out or getting on mm-hmm. your first plane or meeting people yeah. in the street when they didn't turn away from you I just love this again. Sorry if I've misinterpreted, but that's the way my mind. No, not at all. And actually, this this poem was written the first time we left home. It was after vaccines. We rented this small cottage on Point Reyes on a beautiful marsh. Mm-hmm. And it was a really in a, in a funky old cottage. And it was the first time we had ventured out of the house uh, during during the COVID, the early part of COVID after, after we got vaccinated. Um, and uh, this section, as you say, first steps does transition from the scattering of ashes of our of my our, uh, my sister in law to winter to spring. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I agree with your interpretation of uh, this poem, "Offense Garden." And actually, this this one of Peggy uh, Willis Lyle's haiku contest, honorable mention. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it works on the internal level, and I also was thinking about on the external level that it depicts a relationship with nature that no matter how much we try to fence away to barricade ourselves from our nature, from the natural world, the deer nudges to get in. Mm. Uh, So, you know, the D.T. Suzuki, the Zen philosopher, said that, you know, there's an artificial illusion that we're separate from nature, that we are nature. And so the the poem works from that. And and again, the the context is, you're absolutely right of your interpretation. It was inspired by getting out for the first time uh, from our home, we'd be taking walks and been out, but we hadn't dared to rent a place or go travel or anyway. So yeah. it was the first. This happened. This poem was inspired by that event. Almost seventy, the Zen garden still unplanted. Almost seventy, the Zen garden still unplanted. I was I was quite intrigued by this one. I I wondered was it symbolic of anything, and if so. What? But am I? Well, you know, we, we moved into our home in the 1980s, and I inherited a weed-filled lot, mm-hmm. um, and so it's been an ongoing work. I way of staying connected to the natural world, to myself, is the garden. And for many years, there's a small, tucked-away part of this garden, of our garden, on the back side, which had uh, turned. It used to be an herb garden. But it sort of went into disrepair, disrepair, and there was some wild oregano in there and weeds and California poppies. And for years, I imagined it as a tiny Zen space, even though my kids and my wife kidded me that no one would see it. But when COVID happened, when we weren't having people come in that house in those early stages, we would have people come the back entryway. And that's where this little garden is. So I really got the idea that I really wanted to uh, plant this garden. And, uh, you know, the garden is an archetypal symbol of the soul and inner growth. And, and I'll read an Annie Lamont uh, 
quote, which I really liked about garden. It's from Bird by Bird. And she wrote, the garden is one of the two great metaphors of humanity. The garden is about life and beauty and the impermanence of living things. And so you pour yourself into it. You care so much. You see things growing and dying and the beauty of it. And then everything dies, right? But you just keep doing it. And, yeah. uh, you know, the garden for me and Buddhism is a path towards accepting that we're all unplanted and the impermanence that we all uh, face and that true happiness is living in harmony with our natures rather than fighting against it. And I'm really grateful to say that actually this winter, with some help of these two wonderful young women uh, landscapers, we did plant this area in a little Zen garden. And there's an azalea for spring color, a white azalea. Wow. And there's a miniature maples. And maples represent uh, uh, autumn and impermanence and beauty and endurance. And then I have a bonsai cypress, which uh, in Buddhist thinking represents uh, eternal life. And they're all nested amidst lichen uh, covered stone and oh. a Buddha in the garden. Oh, that sounds so beautiful. I, I did plant my garden. So. Thank you for that, Bruce. And Bruce, mm -hmm. you know what? We sort of nearly finished now, and it's been a real pleasure to talk to you again and to hear you read your work. And just to tell everyone, I can highly recommend this book. As I said to you when we were planning this chat, I was having trouble actually getting time to read the book myself as my family kept picking it up and heading off to their rooms and, and reading it. And and then they came back and they were sharing examples. And uh, we've I've already said, read two of them. Um, there was another, but I think people should get the, the book and uh, and read it themselves. It's the, I'll just tell you, Bruce, it was the toilet roll one. They absolutely love oh. the toilet roll. <laughs> But anyway, so Bruce, as I said earlier, details of how to get hold of this book will be in the show notes. But if people would like to go straight from this reading um, and buy it, where's the best place to go? They can email me at haikubruce at gmail.com or they can visit my website, which is haikubruce.com. And there's you can shop online or you can email me too. Okay. Thanks, Bruce. And uh, to close the podcast today, could you please read one last poem for us? It was chosen by my daughter um, and it means a lot to us because robins were my mum's special bird and we lost her during the time of COVID. And this poem gives us a lovely warm feeling. Thank you. Robin's song, the first morning without him. Robin's song, the first morning without him. Thank you, Patricia. I'm really honored and grateful to be here and I always enjoy chatting with you. It's always really a lot of fun. It was fun. And just to tell people again, if you're coming in late, you'll have to start all over again. But this was Bruce H. Feingold reading from his really wonderful book, Everything with an Asterisk. Thanks, Bruce. Thank you, Patricia. Thank you. Thanks very much to Bruce and Kelsey for coming along today and reading for us. All the details for Bruce and his book Everything with an Asterisk are in the show notes. And if you'd like to join Kelsey to see what this American gets up to in Europe, then head over to the show notes for a link to her Instagram page. And thank you, as always, for joining me today. I look forward to reading out your original haiku and senryu using Fukigo in the next podcast. Alison Whipple will be back as part of the judging panel. As long as the internet fairies are on our side, that is. 
so do join us next time. But until then, keep writing. Now, of course, it's always possible that I messed up. If you think there's anything missing in the show notes, do email me or message me on Twitter. I'll see you soon. Ciao.